Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. I'm your host, Matt Agarist, and I'm joined by Don Via Jr. today, uh, as Jason is down South California doing some activist work. Um, today, we have the privilege of speaking to two extraordinary individuals, uh, Will Griffin and Joe Ergo, both of whom bring a wealth of lived experience from the military and a critical understanding of the implications of the U.S. foreign policy. These two gentlemen are now part of an organization that does basically the opposite of military recruiters. Their organization is called We Are Not Your Soldiers and Will and Joe act as anti-recruiters. To give you a little background on these guys, um, Will grew up on a US military base overseas and was shaped from childhood by the military industrial complex. As a paratrooper and mechanic in the US Army, he experienced firsthand the failures of the Iraq surge under W. Bush and the Afghanistan surge under Obama. Joe is a little different. He came onto the scene several years before and served as a security policeman in the U.S. Air Force uh, during Vietnam. On returning home, Joe became one of the leaders of the Vietnam veterans against the war, and his first-hand experiences led him to see the actual role of U.S. military worldwide in defending and expanding its empire. Personally, I can attest to the importance of both the message of the message of both of these folks that they now spread. As you know, I served in the Marine Corps and uh, I was deeply rooted in this neoconservative mindset. And it, it like it took me years to break free, even after I had gotten out. Um, you know, it's a journey from being a brainwashed soldier like Marine that would have done anything. I would have harmed anybody that, you know, that these people would have pointed to. Literally, I would have shot children. I would have done any of that. I know that's horrible to hear, but that's what I would have done. It's a, it was a long journey to understand the profound implications of that mindset and, you know, how to break free from that. This is why what, you know, the work of We Are Not Your Soldiers and the voices of veterans like Will and Joe resonate so deeply with me. To, uh, to kick off our discussion today, I'd like to start with like basically a foundational question. You know, we can start with Joe and then Will can answer the same question after. Um, so amidst your individual experiences and backgrounds, what was like the key moment or realization that drove you to become an advocate for peace and uh, join and, and become a part of We Are Not Your Soldiers initiative? Um, for me, in 1968, Tet, uh, my security police unit was on the uh, west perimeter of Thompson Air Base when the Vietnamese Liberation Forces attacked our base. They came through the fence line, uh, knocked out the people, the um, guys in the 051 bunker, killed four of my friends. And um, that was part of the Tet Offensive and the attack on Tonsonut Air Base. Um, <clears throat> that was the beginning for me because I could not believe um, all the experiences that I had 
that night and everything afterward for my entire year of Vietnam, where I kept coming up against the um, what I first thought was incompetence and lack of leadership and bad officer training and yada, yada, yada. And as I began to not be satisfied by these answers, I went through the entire year um, from one situation to another, trying to figure out why my friends died, why we're killing all these people. And through this a very long process and realization um, and confronting some truths, I came to see that um, not only what we were doing in Vietnam was wrong, but later on, as I, as I grew in my experiences, I began to see that this was part of this whole worldwide system of um, not just what the military does, but the system of actually capitalism, imperialism that determined why, you know, that was the, um, the reason why we were there. For sure. Yeah. There's no, like Smedley Butler said, right. All wars are for profit <clears throat> and, and they serve special interests and, and it definitely not the American people. So, so Will, uh, why don't you give us a little background of, uh, of how you got onto this scene? Yeah, sure. For, um, so first of all, thank you for inviting us. Uh, and thanks for reaching out to, we are not your soldiers really appreciate it. And, um, so, uh, let's see, listen, I mean, basically I joined in 2004 while both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were raging. Um, I didn't really get heavy into the peace movement until 10 years later, 2014. Um, but the, there, there wasn't a specific moment for me. It was just a lot of different moments. I think just like you said in the introduction, uh, you know, it takes years to undo all of this conditioning that we've gone through, mm -hmm. um, from the military. Right. So, I mean, I got out in 2010, I, I started to get somewhat active, but I really didn't get too active in the peace anti-war stuff until 2014. But, you know, I'll tell you one of the first moments, you know, and I come from a military family. So I joined was like, you know, people got to serve their country, that whole gung ho mentality. Um, but, you know, I went to Iraq in 06. While we were there, Bush announced the surge, and I was there for the surge. And uh, by the end of 2007, we were just asking ourselves, what the hell is going on? Nothing is getting better. And we know in hindsight now that that surge completely failed. And then on top of that, I go to Afghanistan uh, roughly two years later. And what does Obama do? You know, first he 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 announces the surge in Afghanistan, knowing that the Iraq surge failed, and was failing. Um, so you know that was a really uh, deep political lesson for me that you have uh, George Bush from the Republican Party do the surge in Iraq, and and he's a white guy. Let's 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 just name that. And then you have Obama from the Democratic Party. Uh, who's a black guy, the first black president, do the same exact thing. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know these, both of these major political parties uh, are just in tandem together, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Um, and of course, you know, I did have some really horrible experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. I had friends die. I haven't had friends die in the VA system afterwards. Uh, you know, just all of these things combined uh, really got me to, to question things. And then 
Um, really, I joined the peace and anti-war movement in 2014. I actually got to travel around the world to see where a lot of these military bases are and uh, see firsthand how in a non-combat zone, how a U.S. military base can uh, impact the lives of local villages and towns and cities in very negative ways. Um, and so all of that combined, you know, that's uh, almost 10 years of organizing, you know, almost damn near 20 years since I joined the military. All this uh, have, have like culminated to, to where I am today, where, you know, I've been doing uh, counter recruitment talks with We Are Not Your Soldiers for years now. Right on, man. Uh, that's <clears throat> it, it's a it's a it. You're like more my age, where I experienced some you know very similar situations, and uh, being on multiple military bases and seeing how the the civilians uh, receive you in these places, you know, and uh, while you're in, you know, you don't really understand that they hate you. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, exactly. they, I mean, they, you got, you're basically a, an invading army. I mean, imagine if China had a base in your hometown and from time to time, the soldiers of their military would just go out in town and start shit with everybody, get drunk, rape women and, and do all these things. And that's a reality for all these towns that, uh, across the world that have us military bases in them. And, it's a. Uh, I was, you know, I was when I was in the Marine Corps. We were on a. Uh, I was on a ship, and we, we did a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So it wasn't like I, I um, went to. I was stationed overseas, but we went to various ports, and every time we pull in, you know, we were thinking like, yeah, they're ready to get us. You know, they're ready to to meet all the Marines and shit. I'm like, now I look back at it, and they're like, no, they they <laughs> they saw five thousand you know, crazy sons of bitches jumping off the ship to, to, to party and, and do whatever they wanted to do, you know, and, and then just leave. And, uh, exactly. And can I, can I say something to that? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, you know, this is also like a personal contradiction with me where, um, you know, uh, I have one of my parents that's from Korea. Um, and, uh, you know, both my parents were in the U.S. Army. And so we know that Korea, South Korea has a lot of U.S. military bases and troops, mm -hmm. um, maybe the second largest number of bases in the world behind Germany, I believe. And, you know, when I learned about what the U.S. military was doing in Korea and to the people displacing entire villages to expand their bases and not really uh, compensating them for it. Uh, you know, running over middle school age uh, girls uh, with tanks, oh, uh, let alone the sexual assaults on the population, the environmental problem, the financial costs, uh, all of this, you know, learning about and really just breaking the myths that I was grown, I was raised with and conditioned by. So the conditioning didn't even start with the military, you know, uh, it starts uh, in grade school, public schools, uh, in media, uh, movies, TV shows, all this stuff. But uh, actually going to Korea several times, even places like Okinawa, another place with the heavy military troops, um, and, and meeting these people and hearing their stories. My God, it is a combat zone <laughs> for them. Um, imagine being sexually assaulted by uh, 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 these troops. And then uh, the higher leadership of the U.S. military, which is their foreign military to them, uh, hiding, trying to hide those crimes, 
expediting and, and shipping these troops back to the U.S. To, so they don't get uh, prosecuted under the host country's legal system. They, all those types of things that happen. You know, it was a real contradiction for me to really kind of face that head on and really think about, okay, what is really going on here? Yeah, it's it's so true. And this is the exact opposite of what you're told. Like you said, the conditioning starts as a child, especially with when your recruiters, you know, they're like, travel the world, see the, you know, see the world. And it's, it's not at all like that. It's, um, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's the exact opposite, man. Um, so yeah, so I know by now, um, you know, our, our listeners are getting a, a good look into your background and everything. So basically could we describe like what one of these, um anti-recruitment scenarios looks like um i think that uh, it's important for people to under any you know people listening to this to understand that you know we're a diverse group in our years our experiences and political beliefs but we're united in opposition to what the core mission of the u.s military in the world is today which is to defend and expand the empire we're opposed to that so we try to bring home the reality of what life is like for the people in those countries where the U.S. has invaded, made war against, or just based in their countries. Um, we talk about the facts about what happens to the, to the kids who go into the military, what basic training is actually like, how basic training prepares you for um, all of the madness that you're going to go through. and. Um, we have all different ways of talking to the youth, using videos, recounting our experiences through stories. Uh, one person has a power, uh, will has a PowerPoint presentation, and another presenter uses rap music. Um, there's three authors in our books. There's two women, and um, another uh, guy has a lot of experience in the PTSD and Agent Orange field. So people come from all these wide and diverse experiences, and what we look for in the classes is to encourage the youth to answer, to ask the hardest questions. That critical thinking and analyzing reality is an important part of our mission. And that's what all of these experiences, what we're, what we're trying to do. And that's why we, we really encourage teachers to bring us into your classrooms, sometimes in person, but certainly through Zoom. You know, um, students, tell your teachers that, uh, we can provide a very interesting and challenging talk and conversation. So that's what the, that's what it's like in general. Um, it's it's a, can be a wild experience in some situations. Um, I did a class in Vermont in person where um, they brought in two classes, a bunch of teachers, and we showed a video called. Um, um, Oh, it escapes me at the moment. It's the one with um, collateral murder. What did Julian Assange put yeah, in? That's right, collateral murder. murder okay. The one yeah, I figured right. that. And um, where Ethan McCord, um, uh, the uh, GI in the who go who goes into the uh, um, the jeep and or the vehicle and rescues one of the children. So that whole um, thing was being shown in the class. And these students came in, and I can remember one guy in particular were really hopped up and, you know, all this macho bravado, 
and trying to, you know, talk to the girls and that makes that interesting. And all this stuff was going on in the class. And we showed this video. And at the end of it, I can look at that kid and he was devastated by what he saw because you can see the illusions being, being wrangled and stripped away that what you thought were heroes were actually committing murder. And that's the kind of experiences where the students can then stand up and ask some very challenging questions. And that was one of the highlights where I've done a class. But that's what it's got to be like. And that's what we go for in different ways. Yeah, that's, that seems like a really good approach. I, I know Roger Walt, Waters of Pink Floyd actually um, does that now, where he um, he shows collateral murder video during his before his concerts and talks about how Julian Assange is in jail for, for basically taking that video from Chelsea Manning and, and putting it out there. And oh, it, none of the people who participated in it or ordered that strike are in jail, by the way, but you know, that's the, that's a, that's a different story, but the, the, the kids watching that, it's gotta be uh, pretty powerful. Uh, Will, would you mind giving us your perspective on what it's like walking into these classrooms? And I, but I also wanted to know how, like being that these are government operated schools, um, it seems like the government would have a negative incentive to allow people in to talk about not joining the government, right? Like uh, that. Uh, so yeah. I, I want to get your perspective on that after. But uh, Will, yeah, I'm sorry. You can answer that that first question. I just didn't want to forget that question. I want to ask. Yeah, no, I got you. So um, my my, you know, we usually speak to university students and um, high school students, and you know, it's 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 kind okay. of funny. Um, the high school students, you know, in person, they're very lively. They got responses and questions and comments. You know, they're high school kids. Um, obviously, you know, the questions aren't too deep most of the time, but, you know, they're lively. But then sometimes we'll go to university places and, you know, these are college kids. You know, I feel like they don't want to be there. Everything is quiet. <laughs> so we, we have to find ways to work uh, in different situations to try to get responses from people to spark ideas, especially critical thinking. Um, but my general approach is I, I basically do 50% personal story, 50%. Um, uh, like a uh, slides for presentations. I, I would like, I mean, if I preferred, I would do more slides because I just want to be like, here are the facts. Like this is what's objectively true. And this is what's true about the military, what it does, how it operates, how it's structured. And none of this benefits you, your family, your community, or generally the working class. <laughs> um, it doesn't. It doesn't benefit the, the the working classes of host nations or with the nations that are invaded. Like here are the facts. But you know, a lot of people uh, they need the they need different ways to interpret facts. So the the personal story side, you know, really can grab uh, the students' attention um, because they can relate to it. And a matter of fact, many of them. Uh, are thinking about joining the military. Mm -hmm. uh, we do kind of prioritize, at least my experience has been mostly in uh, lower income schools, many black and brown schools. And, you know, the more you go into these types of schools, the more you see people thinking of uh, joining the military as an option, like you said earlier, to go see the world, to mm -hmm. to be disciplined, to, to look nice, just like those commercials we see or in the movies. 
um, all that kind of jazz. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting the second question you added. Uh, I was just curious as to how you guys are allowed into the schools, being that these are government schools and you're sitting there talking um, negatively about the government, you know, the expansion of U.S. empire and basically inside their hive indoctrination, you know, hives rather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think I have a little bit of a in, uh, insight on this. I have a very close friend who is a high school teacher. Okay, let's. There's a big difference in a high school or even a university that is uh, very wealthy in the suburbs. Um, it has a dim different demographic of, of families and students associated with that school. Then you have very low income, poor. Uh, commun poor community-based uh, students and families, right? Mm -hmm. my, my insight, what I've learned um, in, in the teacher community, the school communities, is that when you're in the poor, lower income uh, 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 schools, mm -hmm. there you can get away with a lot more. It's like, just don't get the kids shooting each other or fighting each other. Just keep, <laughs> just make it to the end of the day. Uh, but when you when you're more in of a, a higher end type of school in the burbs or whatnot, you know, there's you know, those kids can go home and tell their fam their parents and those parents have connections and networks and that those networks will come back to bite the teacher in the ass and report to their supervisors, so on and so forth. So they have to, you know, excuse my uh, language, watch their asses a lot more than the lower income places. So um, but I will say, I think generally speaking, um listen i think most schools aren't going to invite us <laughs> yeah i mean they have rotc <laughs> programs in every single school to groom kids into the military you know while they're at at these while they're at schools so it's it, yeah just it it was mind-blowing to me when i saw that you guys actually you know sought out schools and and were able to get into some of these schools and, and uh, let me say that, like, we are not your soldiers. One of the reasons I joined it years ago was because I was like, there's no one else doing this. Mm -hmm. So not only is like I'm, maybe there's one or two organizations or even more that are doing it more locally. Uh, um, but as far as like trying to do something more national, definitely regional, we are not your soldiers or the only ones doing it. And that is even limited in and of itself. So. Uh, but I will say I, I was invited um, two years in a row to a military high school academy. Um, <laughs> and one of them being some, I think, a retired lieutenant colonel in the army. Um, and I think he just wanted to, I don't think he was necessarily against or for anything, but he was like one of those very like neutral people and was like, the kids need to know both sides. And so he found the program, invited me to speak to the kids or whatever. But it's it's kind of wild seeing these kids in like their dress uniforms, uh, yeah. <laughs> going up to this class, not knowing what that uniform represents. One of the experiences I think from um, you know Stephanie, who organizes these these outings or these uh, arranges these talks, is uh, that she's got a, a selection of teachers who want to bring us into their classes and these schools are not it, it isn't like um it's been my experience that it isn't like the uh, principal controls everything that goes on in those classes teachers have some leeway and that's where we are allowed to get that's how we get into the classes and the other thing is that we also as our mission i think the way we're structured is to try to not 
um, base what we talk to the students from the position of personal interest. In other words, we don't want the students thinking, um, well, well, from person, we, we actually um, talk more about politics and morality as the basis for them to make a decision about whether to go in the military or not, as opposed to sometimes, uh, you know, on the left in particular, people go into classes and think that the way you're going to win these kids to not go in the military is to tell them, well, you can get a job and you can go to college. You know what I mean? And anybody who knows that, you know, the way the economy in this country is for lower income people, that college question is really out of the out of the loop. And um, we don't want them thinking just strictly from the point of view of what's good for them, but mainly from the point of view of what's in the interest of the people of the world, what's in the interest of, you know, this world of humanity that you don't want to be the cops of the world. And that, to me, makes a stronger basis for them to make a decision. You can see the kid wrangling, well, job or no job, or you can see him thinking, do I really want to kill people? And to me, that's where where it um, it you know is a is a real dividing line and a cutting edge way of approaching this. Mm-hmm. Right, and I, I think it's a, a really powerful uh, way of really getting across to the kids because, especially as as being a young person myself, I know I'm the youngest person out of the four of us. I'm uh, 28 years old, and in a way. I was sort of spared, luckily, the uh, the nonsense that comes along with having in- enrolled in the military just as sort of by luck. Because um, I also come from a military family, living with my grandparents. I really uh, idolized my grandfather and that sort of, uh, you know, quote unquote, greatest generation, the fight against Nazi Germany. And that was sort of where a lot of my indoctrination to the U.S. military came from that sort of put me on the path to one of joining the army. And thankfully out of a number of things that occurred in my life that didn't work out. And I know me and Matt have had those conversations um, where we sort of talked about that. Cause I was really like, especially in high school, I was so gung ho about it. Like I remember having conversations mm-hmm. with my recruiters about, yeah, I want to go over there. I want to kill these people. I want to fight for the country and do the good fight. And like, they were so set on getting me and thankfully just, a couple things happened that stopped that from happening. And in hindsight, I'm so thankful for that. And in learning more about this stuff, I can, as, as the youngest person out of the four of us, I can certainly say that if there were at that time, a group like we are not your soldiers that came to our school and told us about these things, it would have swayed not only me, it would have swayed so many people that I know who went into the military, who now a lot of them uh, in my same age group are looking back and saying, man, what, what was it all for? I went to Afghanistan, all this stuff happened. I lost buddies and, you know, Don, I'm really glad that you didn't join us. Cause it's, you know, what Taliban's taken over Afghanistan again, um, Iraq's still falling apart. And we were really just there as an occupying force. And I have these friends that talk to me about this stuff and they're like, dude, like it's, like what was it for really and so like you know so groups like we are not your soldiers are so important i think as you know joe was just saying about getting into the mindset of these kids and breaking them of that indoctrination especially now because like back in 
in like 2009, 2010, when I was in high school, like we know from, for a fact, from like reports and declassified documents that the Pentagon was already pumping millions of dollars into movies and video games as propaganda efforts. But now more so um, over 10 years later, the amount of resources that they're putting in specifically into franchises like Call of Duty, there are actually declassified documents that show um, that that these video games are specifically being used as propaganda assets or, or ways of disseminating propaganda to young people to encourage them to get into the military. And there's actually a friend of mine who was also in the army who flat out told me the reason he joined was because of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and thinking, yeah, I'm going to be a badass just like these guys. And it was just a couple months ago, I uh, was having a conversation very similar to this, talking about imperialism and, and U.S. propaganda, where a report uh, through from Mint Press News actually came out showing that the reboot of the Modern Warfare franchise is being so heavily funded by the Pentagon as a sort of uh, mental recruitment efforts so that the recruiters don't even have to do much work because they're already pumping them with this idea. Yeah, you're going to go out there and be an action hero and kick a bunch of ass. And, you know, it's basically doing their jobs for them, which is why I think, uh, you know, groups like We Are Not Your Soldiers are so important to sort of try to break through that programming. And sort of my question really was, what have been some of the challenges that you all have faced with sort of breaking through the propaganda of uh, this, this, you know, or sort of breaking through the mental indoctrination of this massive propaganda campaign, given how much we know it is, is well-funded. Like, have, have you had any sort of issues like getting through to these kids or, or, or are, are they able to sort of see it without like pushing back? Cause you know, when, when we talk, uh, like when I've gone to anti-war war rallies, for example, talking to some of the older heads, even guys just 10 years older than me, like there's, there's such pushback, but the younger people, they seem more susceptible to understanding and grasping logic and reason and reality when you present them with facts, as opposed to older people, even just 10 years older, who seem to be more uh, in entrenched in their cognitive dissonance and not really willing to look at evidence. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's been my experience going to the classes that, frankly, you run a range of things. I, I was in a class where the kids were half asleep and weren't paying attention. And so you have to figure out creative ways to try to break through, especially in the high schools. You know, like Will was saying, when you get to college, the students have a little bit more perspective. They have some experience and, they, and the questions tend to be a lot sharper. But in high school, it's a real challenge. And that's why the videos help, because the videos help to sharpen things up and draw their attention. And one of the questions that, that uh, we ask the students is, who is in, has been in, who's thinking to go in the military? Who has family in the military? And a whole bunch of hands will come up when you talk about family, because everybody knows how deep the military has roots in you know, every family in the country in one way or another. And the interesting thing is when I ask the students, um, well, your brother, father, mother, cousin, uncle, who went over there in whatever war they were in, do they talk about it? And it is almost 
un, unbelievably, you know, 100% that people will say, no, they never talk about it. They don't talk about basic training. And they don't talk about what they saw or what they did overseas. And to me, that shows you how deep is the brainwash that one, people um, don't want to discuss what they saw and they did, partly because of shame, partly because they're confused, they're angry, you know, there's a whole wide range of things. And the, the question these students is sitting there and they, there's something mysterious about this. And that's what I try to tell them. I try to say, look, we got to go behind, you know, I'm going to bring you some information that nobody else is telling you. And, you know, and, and that's where sometimes it'll open up. And I've been in different situations. You know, one time um, in a high school class, the kids weren't listening. And I, I changed my tactics. And I said, who here has seen Rambo? And you see a whole bunch of hands go up. And one of the, I said, well, what did you like about it? And one kid said, the killing, you know, and it was like, that shocked me. And so we go through the class and it's clear that the, I'm trying to get some discussion going and the students were not exactly paying attention. And then this young woman stands up and says, y'all listen, this guy's talking about, you know, trying to get at the reason why, you know, that, that these, this killing is wrong and what we got to do about it. And then the, the students began a debate between themselves. That was interesting. And I was in another class where a young woman stood up um, and, and thanked me and said, you know, nobody else is telling us this, this stuff. And there have been a whole bunch of other experiences like that, most of which I've forgotten. But the, that's what we go for. We go for that kind of situation, but it's not easy because you've got to think on your feet and you've got to be flexible. And you've got to use, you know, a lot of your experience and 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 try to figure out how to make this breakthrough. It is not easy in this culture. And some, you know, the movies and and the overwhelming presence of the military and the recruiters and, and everything is coming at these students. The culture, the you know, it's it's in there. And that, but something else is going on that I thought was interesting. That is the. Um, when the latest statistics of the military came out about recruiting and how difficult the military now is having to recruit, the news was is that um, the very first thing that students were concerned about, about why they're not interested in going in the military, is because of PTSD, because of mental, they don't want to have any mental issues when they come home. That speaks a lot about what they are experiencing from those relatives. They're recognizing something. And the military now is trying to craft a, um, a whole new strategy to break through on that. And there's even a, a Marine who's come out with a new book actually suggesting as a young person, um, here's how you can do your recruiting even better. So this is all part of this contention in this field that we're trying to make, you know, reach students broadly. And that's right. why we really need teachers who are listening to this broadcast to bring us into their classes. And we can, you know, get into this with, with the students. Right. And I think the mental health aspect is, is uh, something else that I've noticed probably 
one of the most, even though it is very unfortunate, the, the massive mental health crisis that has happened with so many of our veterans. I mean, of course, uh, you know, 22 veterans a day is still the statistic that they commit suicide because of the, the awful things that they've had to do and seen and the way they've been treated by Uncle Sam basically is a, a disposable mercenary when they come home. Um, but as young people are starting to, in a way, like consciously evolve, become more aware of mental health, um, more concerned with with taking care of their mental well-being, um, that's probably one of the greatest tools that I've seen to to make young folks really question what it is happening here um, because of this massive mental health epidemic that we see among soldiers and among families of soldiers that have been traumatized and uh, from these conflicts and whatnot is, is starting this dialogue of, you know, what is going on with the brains of these people and, and how, how hurt they are. And do you as a young person really want to put yourself through that and your families through the, uh, issues that, that occur of, of loving someone with severe PTSD, because, you know, as, as someone who knows people with PTSD, it's hard. And I, I don't have it and I don't have to tell anyone who does have it that it's hard, but for people who don't know, you know, when you have a family member or a friend who's waking up in the middle of the night screaming because they just had a dream about something that happened in Iraq, it's, it hurts you to see someone you love go through that. And, and I, you know, obviously to be the person going through that, it's, it's probably a living hell. And so getting that conversation going is, is, is very important. Yeah. Those, those stories certainly uh, help to, I guess, waken the masses. You know, if, if you look at the, the mental health of, of the military and the, you know, the veterans who get out of the military, we've covered that for over a, for a decade now and several times throughout uh, the last 10 years, you know, the number one cause of death amongst uh, active duty soldiers was themselves. And, you're, you know, it's it's even it's it's much higher active duty than it is uh, for veterans. You know, there's far more veterans than there are active duty. But, uh, at, you know, the, these numbers were getting out of control. And and basically the the role of the government in that situation was to silence it, ignore it, do not let the media report on it. You know, and and but those st statistics, had they been widely published, you know, we were marching in New Orleans, uh, you know, to, to on national TV to try to get like interrupting uh, national TV to try to get this uh, this information out there. You know, the 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 sheer number of suicides that happen every day and uh, they, they still ignored it, you know. Uh, but, yeah, that's a very powerful um, motivator to, to wake people up to this is the fact that, you know, look at how many people that join are so distraught with what they're doing that they're ending their own lives. That's a, it's a powerful thing. And I mean, it's a, it's a tough thing to talk about. No one ever wants to talk about suicides, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's had I heard about that when I was still deep in my neocon mindset, you know, that might've helped to push me out of it. You know, it took, I remember like one turning point um, when, you know, I was still very deep into this. I'll kill anybody the government wants. Me, you know, um, I, I had lost a, a friend of mine, uh, got his legs blown off in Iraq. And um, my dad and I were at his funeral. Um, and, you know, like everybody's crying, his brothers, his mom, everybody's crying. And 
my dad looks at me and he's like, for what? You know, and I'm like, I wanted to come back with this retort, you know, like, oh, he's protecting the kind. And, and but like something right there when he asked me, you know, as I'm seeing the suffering of all of his, you know, his his wife, his all these people that I grew up with that I knew, um, none of them, you know, like they all wanted a reason for for him not being there anymore. And I was trying to create one when my dad asked me, and I I, I couldn't. There was no there was no. I couldn't contemplate why that would happen. He was, I'm, I'm trying to say like, Oh, they're keeping us free, but none of that was true. You know <laughs> that, but uh, anyway, that helped wake me up. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that a lot of these kids that you guys are coming in contact with are, um, are, are open-minded and, and are receptive to this message. And like, so uh, I mean, that being said, have, have there been any kind of like memorable reactions or responses from students after you share these stories with them? Has anybody come up to you and been like, you know, thank God that you guys came and talked to me or, you know, maybe I had a friend or any, anything like that uh, that you guys have had happen since you've been doing this. Yeah, I could I could go ahead. Let me just touch on the uh, the suicide rate of 22 veterans. Maybe it's 18 a day today. I don't know, something like that. Uh, you know, and I use that example when I do speak uh, to students and, and I go a little bit deeper because I think generally the general reaction is when you hear about so many veterans killing themselves in just one day over and over for decades now, uh, you, we tend to think, oh, these are just combat veterans. But when you look at the numbers, there's actually a whole array of veterans com that went to combat, that didn't go to combat, uh, veterans that got out 20 years ago, veterans that got out two years ago. Uh, you know, they're all killing themselves. And, um, uh, even when you look at the active duty suicides, overwhelmingly, most of them happen within the first year. And I think most of us know within your first year of military, you're usually in training or getting stationed at your permanent duty station at the very beginning and not really deploying until your second or third year if you're going to deploy to a combat zone. So what's that say? And I use this example in class all the time. That means just joining the military increases your chances of suicide tenfold or whatever the numbers are. Um, and, and I really try to point out that uh, it's not just these wars. That's the problem. I talk a lot about sexual assault and I show a, a, a trailer to a movie, which I think um, everybody should watch well, a documentary. It's called The Invisible War. It came out in 2012. And I just show the trailer, which is like a minute and a half, maybe two minutes. And people are, students' responses to this is crazy. Because what the invisible war shows is that you have one soldier committing a sexual assault on another soldier. And in fact, a lot of the leadership can be involved in these sexual assaults uh, to the lower enlisted. And uh, so what's this like? These people aren't going to combat. This is all within the military by just joining the military, whether you go to a combat zone or not. So I really try to point these things out. And yeah, so as far as responses, I'd say worst case scenario, at least for me, is uh, I had one young high school girl just walk out of the class in the first five minutes. It's like, no, nope, not doing it. Um, I think generally the best case scenarios is like at the end of the talk, students are like, I'm not joining the military. I was thinking about it, but after this, I'm not joining. And I got to say, I've had more of those best case scenarios, way more than worst case scenarios. I think I give a really compelling argument and I really make it hard to argue against 
all the things that I'm showing the students, the facts, the personal experiences, and showing that it's not just going to war, that, and it's not just infantry, it is all jobs, all people that join the military are suffering from all of these problems. Um, and, and, and I say one particular thing was really great. So there's like, obviously, best case, worst case scenarios, but people in the middle who aren't, on, who aren't sure, uh, We Are Not Your Soldiers likes to stay in touch with the teachers and professors and try to get uh, students to reflect and write down some of their thoughts about each present, presentation. And one that I got was, that always stuck in my mind, this, this one student was, a university student was just like, you know, I gotta tell you, I didn't believe a thing that this dude said. I didn't believe anything that he said about the military, but he admitted to himself that he didn't know anything and started to look up all the things that I said. The over trillion dollar uh, uh, budget for for the military, the sexual assault ratios, the veteran suicide ratios, all this stuff, and he was like, you know what, this guy was just telling us the truth, and it kind of like opened his mind up and was like, wow, I had no idea that this was going on, and you know, he was a typical American student, young person that was just like, God bless America, this is the best place ever, no matter what we do. And, uh, and really, you know, I broke that myth that he was conditioned to. And I was, I was proud of that moment. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's really great. And I think another question that I had is, is how much does elaborating the history of U.S. imperialism really play a part in your message? And also, how does it get through to these kids? Because I know me personally, I'm a huge history buff. I love learning about history, and even back when I was in high school and really gung-ho about joining the military, um, jo learning, obviously, the U.S. government version of history was like something that I really enjoyed you know, reading about and, and stuff. And then as I started to get older, and even, even in high school, because it was around high school, freshman year, that I started to learn a lot of the things that woke me up to the corruption of the government and pushed me away from the military-industrial complex, like 9-11, for example. Once you start asking the questions about what really happened on that day, it starts to raise a lot of red flags. Um, and as I continued, like sort of after I already began to shift away from the military-industrial complex and and see it for what it is, start digging in and learning more about history and, and realizing that I pretty much everything I thought I knew was wrong. Um, learning about General Schmedley Butler, learning about the, the business plot of the 1930s, Operation Paperclip in 1945, when the State Department brought all the Nazis over from Nazi Germany and put them into the Office of Strategic Services and the State Department and all these other things. And and sort of how that played into the greater expansion of the military-industrial complex and the deep-rooted fascist nature of it, and sort of learning, um, say, for example, Eisenhower's speech about the military-industrial complex during his farewell address, and then digging into the facts of the U.S. wars, even during World War II, um, you know, the sort of the lies about what happened at Pearl Harbor with the fact that it is a documented fact that our government knew that that attack was coming and they sort of turned a blind eye to it. There were 
numerous military officials in Hawaii who were trying to raise red flags, who were getting removed from their positions because they were questioning why the Roosevelt administration was doing what it was doing, and just sort of coming to the realization that every single war, damn near, has been based on lies. And again, as a student, had someone come to me with those facts when I was in high school and, and laid them out for me on the table, you know, in, in the, the way that my history buff mind would have basically ate this stuff up because I just love learning, it also would have been another huge thing to sort of turn me off from this. And so, like, is that something that you guys incorporate into your message? Or, or in, if so, have students been receptive to it? Has it been something that they sort of, because I know history is, for a lot of people, is a boring subject. I love it, but I know a lot of people get turned off by it. Um, so is, is that something that, that you guys incorporate, and has it been effective? Yeah, let me just uh, tell a quick uh, example, and then I'll turn it over to Joe. Listen, I talk, you know, there's this myth in this country of how much the government and, uh, you know, generally everyone just loves our veterans and we just love them so much. You know, um, we all know that's a lie. Veterans, we talked about suicide rates, the homeless rates, you know, veterans, veterans are going through some really tough, tough times. And it's actually, I do a little history lesson sometimes where it's always been like that. And the benefits that veterans receive today, which are much greater than ever before, it wasn't like the government or the elite was just like, here, we love you all. Here are the benefits. Go and live your lives happily ever after. No, veterans fought and died over decades for the benefits that us veterans today live off of. Uh, I talk about the bonus army, which are the veterans from World War I that were promised a financial bonus. And when they return, guess what? No financial bonus. And they really needed to get that, um, get that, get that money from the government. But it took them uh, like uh, two decades, I believe in 1936, to organize a huge, basically like the first Occupy movement uh, at the Capitol um, and was like, we're, we're veterans. We're not going anywhere until we get that bonus that you promised us over two decades ago. Well, what happened is the active duty troops, um, one of them being uh, a young officer named uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, among other later famous generals, uh, ordered troops to remove these veterans by force many of them getting hurt, some of them getting killed. So we have a situation where active duty is killing veterans. And then what happens shortly after, this was in 1936, uh, World War II starts, Roosevelt says, we can't have veterans coming back from this World War II and doing the same thing as the first. So he implements more uh, programs and benefits for veterans, such as the GI Bill, right? So the point here is that veterans have fought, literally fought and died. And that's just one major uh, point of veteran history. Veterans have fought and died for the benefits that, that we deserve. And, and nobody loves us. <laughs> We've had to fight for this shit from day one. Uh, so that's a history lesson I like to bring uh, into the classroom. I don't know, Joe, if you have uh, an example. One of the things that I'll hold up in this book, if you guys can see it, it's called Killing Hope. 
U.S. military and CIA interventions since World War II. And it details all this list of about 25, 30 countries that the U.S. has made war against since the end of World War II. And that doesn't take into account some of the recent um, U.S. counterterrorism operations in about 85 countries in the world. But the interesting thing is at the back of the book, it lists an appendix, instances of U.S. armed forces abroad, in use of armed forces abroad starting in 1798. And it takes you through hundreds of these military interventions, CIA, CIA operations, and wars, etc. And the reason why it became helpful to me is because it really challenged me to say, well, what is this all for? You know, I listened, you guys do your homework, I did my homework. I listened to uh, Dan McKnight's U uh, discussion about being against the U.S. war machine. And one of the things I found interesting in there, similar to what you guys are saying, he's talking about the military industrial complex, U.N. intervention in wars, fighting in the third world, millions of dead in these countries, sanctions, etc. But one of the things that struck me is what's missing from this conversation is What's it really all about? What's it for? And that's where I think it's important that we root ourselves, our understanding, and when we discuss this with people, in understanding how this, this is part and necessary of this whole system of capitalism, imperialism, that what's needed is in this globalized world, the U.S. has these roots, these hooks sunk into countries all over the globe for their natural resources, the labor of the people that live in those countries, and especially strategic positioning against its rivals. So the U.S., for example, had to go to Vietnam. One reason was, and you can see it in the U.S. military patch, you know, the white sword stopping up the yellow wall of China on the sea of red communism. They... And also Eisenhower talked about tin and tungsten. Well, you can talk about today and why the U.S. is all over Africa. You know, what is the natural resources and labor that they're using to make our clothes in Bangladesh? What is actually happening, uh, you know, in um, with the positioning and especially in a world where the, U where the United States is preparing for war against Russia and China, with troop movements all over the Pacific and troop movements all over Eastern Europe and Western Europe, as they are getting ready to possibly go up against their rivals, the other groups of imperialists like China and Russia. So yep. for soldiers, I think it's very important for veterans to actually look at this and talk about these experiences, but say to people, that's what this is for. That's why we're killing the people of the earth. You know what I mean? That's why the United States military is the greatest user of fossil fuels that's driving climate warming, climate change in the, in the world today. And I think all of this, it gets at a deeper understanding so that people are not left to think, well, it's just corruption. It's just bad leadership. It's, uh, you know what I mean? It's a policy. They can just make a decision not to be imperialist. That's right. not true. 
yeah, like and I said, with the the fascist, I'm not cutting you off, uh, Matt. I'm just interjecting for a moment here. Like I said, with the uh, the the inherent fascism that comes along with a lot of it after Operation Paperclip and World War II is a part of the history that people need to realize. Just given the fact that it, you know, the 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 Third Reich had these ambitions of expanding into a global power. And when the State Department brought all of those high-ranking officials over here into the State Department and into the OSS, which became the CIA, those ambitions of the Third Reich became deeply ingrained in our U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, certainly. And the U.S. has been just using unchecked militarism for, for decades to, to implement the this global plan and and cater to their special interests right and i know a lot of people are probably listening to this right now and like they might be thinking like these guys are a bunch of anti-american pieces of crap you know but like the u.s really hasn't ever been in a just war you know arguably ever and like like don just mentioned you know like every single war that the u.s has been has started over lies we we tell ourselves this story about you know going in and beating the germans but we didn't beat the germans the germans were beating stalingrad Millions of people died there, and the Russia heavily defeated the, the Hitler's army before we went in there and basically just finished it off. But I mean, the U.S. militarism is a threat to the globe. It's a big deal, and if you don't understand this, maybe you should go and you know go read a, a really small book by one of the greatest war heroes of all time, uh, Major General Smedley Butler. You know, he wrote. Uh, it's not even a book. It's it's sixty pages called War Is a Racket in which he explains this. He's the only person ever, or maybe not the only person, but he's one of the fewest people ever to win the Medal of Honor, not once, but twice. This dude's got some street cred, and he's coming out here and saying this, you know? Right. Um, and that's like, in the late 1920s, mind you. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, all that being said, like, we still, like, you know, this is the Free Thought Project. We like to consider all angles. So I want to, as the probably the last question here since we're getting close to ending time here um i want to play the devil's advocate right uh you know with this mission of anti-recruitment um i'm out of curiosity what do you envision as a viable alternative for national defense without a traditional military that acts like this my opinion is that um you can't you have to look at the world as it actually is today at this globalized world and you actually have to wrestle with how to what's the salute what's the problem and what's the solution and i think what's actually needed is a actual revolution that without an actual revolution to, to get rid of this capitalist imperialist system and establish what i think a, a socialist system would bring into being a you know especially um, socialism that would actually lead to a whole radically different um, economy and, uh, and society where people could live in common with the people of the earth to solve the problems of the earth and get rid of this exploitation, the, you know, the, the exploitation of the millions of people around the globe that die in order to produce the goods that keep uh, America on top. And I, I think that's the solution. I, one of the things I want to recommend too for, is the American crime series that's on revcom.us where it doesn't just go after doesn't just expose 
the 100 greatest crimes of the U.S. and the military quest, the military adventures. But it also goes deeply into the genocide of the Native Americans and the, and the question of slavery and the oppression that the United States was, the, the oppression and suffering of millions of people in this country that actually built up the empire of the U.S. and put the U.S. into the position of being this global power. You know what I mean? I, I think it's very important that we, look, that we go deeply into that history, and this American Crime Series does that. Yeah, I think, let me just say, you know, if you ask every veteran associated with We Are Not Your Soldiers about how to change, uh, you know, national security strategy and all that, I think you would get different answers. Um, you know, I, you know I, I, I actually agree a little bit with uh, Joe. Listen, right now, just look, at, just look at the U.S. military, the Pentagon, the political system, the economic system, the cultural system. Who does this generally benefit? It benefits a, a minority of people. Uh, we could call them the elite, the ruling class. The, the people who are on top of all of these systems, that's who the military serves. Um, now, we need to flip that around. We need to put uh, poor and working class people in power because we have none. And so what's that mean? That, that, is, that is the actual definition of a revolution, to, to, to flip it upside down. And I think if that were to happen where poor and working class people did have power to make these decisions, we would have a completely different idea of what national security means. And I, I'm pretty sure in that world, national security doesn't mean indiscriminately dropping drone strikes on neighborhoods and funerals and weddings or having 800 military bases around the world. It probably means linking up with other poor and working class people in other countries in, in that share our interests as well as a class, as, as a people, as a community. And we are the majority of people. Like I said, the people who are in power of all of these systems are a minority. Um, so that would, I think, so the, the answering this, the national defense question is completely tied to the society overall and how it's structured. You cannot separate the military. The military, or the, you cannot separate the military from society. And every society has a class aspect to it, a certain type of structure. We have to analyze and evaluate all of that um, because the military is uh, developed to protect that society. But how that society is developed, like ours today in the United States of America in 2023, is that there are a small minority of people that benefit off of the backs of the majority of everyone else in this society and most people around the world. Yeah, I uh, I tend to agree with a little bit of that. You know, I mean, obviously we're the Free Thought Project. It's widely known that we're, uh, you know, free market uh, libertarians. And so while we might, uh, you know, disagree on the end point of the solution, I think we both do agree that our society is is broken. We're in a crisis of consciousness, and it it's certainly going to take some some very profound, albeit maybe a revolution, uh, to to change this. You know, I mean, we'll we'll tend to disagree where I, where I think that you know government can't be the solution. More government can't be the solution to to a runaway government. So, 
that's the time for another podcast. But uh, sure, you know, sure. <laughs> um, you know, as we wrap this uh, this thought provoking episode up, I, I wanted to point that out that it's it's a testament to how uh, you know I, I had no idea that that you guys were going to come on here and mention socialism or anything like that. But that's a testament to the beauty of free discussing. Uh, you know, of having free and open discussions like that, and we can have these dialogues. But we can, we both agree that this world is in a crisis, and the U.S. military plays a very large role in that crisis. And we can both try to talk about potential solutions despite our differing viewpoints. You know, so usually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. And so we usually try to, um, you know, wrap up our episodes like by proposing, you know, solutions and, and we call it like a white pill, which is to give hope. But you guys, what you're doing out there as we are not your soldiers, you know, that basic like reaching out, educating, sharing your truths with these children and trying to convince them not to join this military industrial cancer that it on this planet that is part of the solution that is the solution is stopping this behemoth that that is growing out of control uh you know creating fostering critical thinking in our youth is like a it's a vital step towards this lasting change that uh you know that will only help lead to a peaceful more prosperous society but uh you know so before we wrap up uh will uh joe is there anything you'd like to plug or uh any final words you'd like to share with our listeners yeah, let me just say uh, thank you so much for this discussion. Appreciate the invite from uh, from you all. Uh, so anyone who's listening, if you are a teacher or know any teachers or professors, uh, check out wearenotyoursoldiers.org. Uh, you can look at all the different kinds of veterans that do personal talks. You could see what angle they're coming from, how their message is given, see which one can uh, be best for your students or even, you know, your community of people that you want us to talk to. Um, and, you know, if you're a veteran and you want to join a program like this, uh, go to the website, check it out, um, um, get involved because, you know, this, this shit's not going to change unless we we get active. And, and yeah, thank you uh, to the hosts. I, you know, there's a lot of unity that we have. Uh, sure, there's some differences, but you know what? The, the pressing issues of today, especially the war going on in Ukraine with the potential of World War III and wow. nuclear warfare, you know, U.S. is still trying to maintain its empire. There's a lot that we can uh, unify on to oppose this 
despicable system that we all live under. And, uh, you know, that unity alone is, is very powerful. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for the invite. Right on, man. Very well said. Joe, would you like to say anything? Also, thank you. This has really been a really uh, enlightening talk, I think, for me, too. Um, the people should go on the Facebook page also, because if, my recollection is that on there are some of the responses, including some essays that student wrote, students wrote after um, some of, you know, we came into their classrooms, not my, my experience or Will's, but some other vets. And um, I think that uh, we need more of this kind of dialogue and discussion and debate, and especially more veterans need to be talking to their families and telling the truth about their experiences and especially talking to the youth. And I think we need that kind of back and forth you know what I mean? As we go through this process of actually fighting to change this world. Thank you. Hell yeah, man. And uh, we'll have the links in the podcast description to below whatever you're listening on, whatever platform you're listening on. We'll have all that below. Uh, thank you guys both. It's been an honor having you on the show. We, uh, we sincerely hope that our listeners take a moment to reflect on everything we discussed today. Like just the beauty of coming together, regardless of beliefs and trying to find that end goal is amazing. Uh, until next time, stay informed, stay free thinking, and remember the power to change the world starts with understanding.